Hello and welcome to another DF Direct Weekly, our weekly show where we talk about our content, the news of the week, and answer questions from our Patreon subscribers. There's a lot to talk about this week and I'm gonna go right into it and introduce my friends and colleagues, first starting with the boss himself, Richard Ledbetter. How are you doing there, Rich? Uh, fantastic, yeah, hashtag friend and colleague. Uh, oh yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just pumped looking at this docket, so much to talk about. So, so much. And John, what would be DF Direct Weekly without you? How you doing? Well, it would probably be about the same just without me. You know, we've, we've been there, done that before. So uh, One time, it. we don't talk about it. It's good, it's good to be back another week. Let's do this. Yeah. And let's start off first this week with Doom Eternal finally releasing its next generation patch adding in 120 hertz and ray tracing support depending upon the console you have and john what are your first impressions yeah so um well my first impression was actually that uh i first tried to install the ps5 version and ran into sony store issues uh which were apparently on their end which made it very difficult for it to actually like work initially uh so i download so i actually updated the xbox version and played that first uh and because I was curious, you know, I, I, I expect the PC version is going to be the one to play as always, but I really wanted to see how well their implementation was working on the consoles. And the answer is pretty darn well. Um, I, I think we'll be exploring more of this soon, but, you know, needless to say, my I played through a couple levels, including uh, the first stage of the first DLC of the Ancient Gods, and the frame rate feels very stable in both the ray tracing mode and in the 120 hertz mode, which is key. Uh, 120 hertz on Xbox, I think, is even like, you know, it kind of targets 1800p with DRS. Looks excellent, I feel, in motion. Uh, and it's kind of a weird thing because the ray tracing is very nice, but uh, 120 hertz is also nice. But at least on the PC, you kind of get both, but still. <laughs> yeah, this is something I'm gonna be uh, covering in a video. Looking primarily at the PC version, but I'll uh, sneak in bits of the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X uh, to show off what the differences are on PC and kind of show uh, kind of the diff you know differences between the packages and things like that. And so far, my first impressions uh, just going through the PC version is that this is an awesome, awesome update. It also adds in DLSS, which um, it's doing a lot of work in this title, to say the least. Uh, but you know, I'll be covering more in that in the video, and specifically focusing on at least um, at one point of it how to tweak the game to make it look even better, as well as um, checking out some of that 120 hertz RT uh, frame rate mode, see how far we can push it. That's the the deal right now. The big key here is that their implementation of triangle-based ray tracing seems very performant and on par with some of the other top tier uh implementations we've seen already um it's neat that they kind of went back and re-arted a lot of stuff they made a lot of tweaks and changes to to the materials to fit this new mode so it's not just you know fudging it to make it work with the original exactly as it was they actually really did spend time on this and you can tell um so i feel like it's a it's a really impressive update and in fact in general we got to say Doom Eternal has been extremely well supported uh, th since I covered it last year. I mean, between the two DLC episodes are phenomenal. Uh, they've continued to patch it and add features. And, you know, it was polished on day one, but it's like it's just absolutely packed 
right now and i you know really gotta gotta hand it to these guys they uh they did an awesome job at, with this title so i think just from my perspective um it's ray tracing 60 hertz no real compromises and again you know speaking in the past we just never would have even considered that possible you know <laughs> you know go back to 2018 we were kind of blown away just by rtx happening uh, in the pc space and of course, the consoles were actually in development at that time. So, you know, in terms of the scale of the ambition from uh, the platform holders, and also just in the term, in terms of the way that developers are actually pushing the hardware. And to be honest, you know, I, I'm pretty, I haven't seen your content yet, Alex, apart from a few screenshots. But obviously, PC is able to scale way beyond what the consoles are doing. And uh, that's the other thing I really like about um, this technology is that, you know, the scalability if you go back to kind of, uh, you know, looking at console ports to PC, the last generation, you get frame rate boosts, you get resolution boosts, but very rarely do the features actually scale. And that's not the case with ray tracing. You can really push it. And obviously you've got the uh, accelerant of DLSS as well. Yeah, it's uh, going to really cool show off in the video just how far we can push it. Um, like I said, amazing stuff, and I can't wait to see what id is doing next, given this really great start into the generation so far. But let's move on already to the next topic. So a kind of surprise uh, release of hardware is the Ryzen 4700S. And wait a second, did you guys just hear that? Oh gosh, that was the train going by really quickly. Let me close the windows, I forgot to close. So a surprise um, release of hardware that's coming up very soon is the Ryzen 4700S, which we've already seen releases like this before in the past uh, concerning the last gen console APUs, but we're actually seeing here uh, from AMD a release of what looks to be the PlayStation's APU minus the GPU. And Rich, you've been the one of uh, all of us at DF that's been following this more closely. What do you have to say? Um it's really interesting. <laughs> There's not much, much more to say about it until we actually go hands-on with it. But essentially, what we're looking at here is um, one of the console SOCs. It's not 100% confirmed that it's the PlayStation 5 one. Um, but, you know, indication, indications suggest that it is. And essentially, what they've done with it is to disable the GPU completely and to um, uh, just use it as a CPU. And I think it's got like a 65 watt TDP or whatever. So it is just like a different um, parts that's entering the PC space. It's designed for OEMs. So the chances of building your own are probably quite remote. Um, there is some weirdness that comes with it, of course, because um, there is no uh, DDR4 memory controllers on this APU. So it has to use uh, GDDR6. So you get either eight or 16 gigabytes of G6. And I would say that if you are considering buying one of these systems, definitely get the 16 gigabyte one. <laughs> definitely. Um, and um, yeah, it's just kind of weird. There's, there's just sort of weird legacy elements in the design. Like um, there seems to be limitations on PCI Express lanes that are coming off it. So that's kind of going to be slightly problematic for adding in um, uh, expansion cards. Uh, GPU-wise, they're kind of 
just talking about stuff like a Radeon RX uh, 560 um, up to a 1060. So they're not suggesting that you pair this with a high-end GPU, but obviously we're going to do that anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, kind of curious design. Um, it's going to be used in small form factor machines. I'm guessing the board is, well, we've seen the board. It's actually very tightly integrated. There are a couple of things that are just slightly uh, frustrating about it. The fact that the GPU is completely disabled. So, you know, this is actually a really capable part in the graphics department, as we've seen on PlayStation 5. Doesn't look as though we're going to get any access to those graphics at all, which is a bit of a shame. This excites me, Rich, because you've had so much fun with that Jaguar-based PC for yeah. the past. So I feel like we needed a refresh. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it will be fun to uh, connect up uh, a decent GPU to it and to run Cyberpunk on there. And uh, just to see how that runs using PC code versus, you know, the actual PlayStation 5 version running under BatCompat. So that's going to be interesting. Um, I also think that there's actual, um, I think Sony were quite intelligent in the way they actually used space area for this for this die. Size of the chip's about 298 millimeters square. Um, but most of that is the graphics. So, you know, but to, in order to get that really tight integration, they shaved away strategically parts of the CPU. Um, and well, we certainly haven't seen any ramifications of that in console games so far, but I'm curious to see if any of those artifacts will uh, pop up uh, in PC testing. Um, but yeah, I'm just kind of curious as to how it all happened in the first place. You know, don't these chips belong to Sony? Um, I'm guessing maybe Sony don't have any need for um, APUs that where the graphics uh, may have silicon deficiencies. So rather than just binning off all of those uh, chips, they're actually uh, seemingly being used by AMD to create this uh, Ryzen uh, 4700S. And I guess also there's going to be interesting comparisons with the Ryzen 4750G, which is an, an APU that uses what looks like exactly the same CPU cluster as the Series X. Um, so yeah, lots of curious stuff about, you know, console parts being imported into the PC space and vice versa. So I'm really looking forward to getting hold of one of these things. How I'm going to get hold of one of them, uh, I guess. I guess we, we, you know, ho hopefully an OEM will come forward and and supply a sample. If not, we'll buy one from AliExpress or whatever. But um, yeah, we will be looking at that, and we will be uh, doing some fun tests with it, similar to what we did with the uh, Xbox One APU motherboard. So yeah, look forward to, uh, look forward to that in the future, assuming we can get one. <laughs> I'm actually pretty excited uh, for this myself because with this board, unlike the Xbox One uh, board that you tested out, uh, it seems a little bit less limited because it has the exact same uh, memory configuration at least. And I mean, not every game is going to be PCIe bound necessarily. So we could actually get some really cool testing in with this uh, you know, chunk of hardware here, especially regarding the CPU side since we have the exact same memory subsystem going on. So I'm really excited and uh, can't wait to see what you figure out there, Rich, when the time comes. Well, yeah. So any OEMs out there who do have one they want to send our way, I I'm, I'm, I'm can't wait to get testing. <laughs> okay, well, that's enough of that. Let's move on to the next topic. 
Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart has been patched again, and this time not focusing necessarily on adding new ray tracing or something like that, but a new mode entirely for 120 hertz users, and something that our colleague and friend Richard Ledbetter has been looking for for a while now. So Rich, can you talk a bit about this mode? Um, I prefer friend and colleague, but uh, colleague <laughs> and friend will do. Uh, John and I have both had a go on this and it's uh, really interesting. And it's actually something, if we go back to, you know, remember when you did those uh, photo mode tests with control, Alex? Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, when you ran photo mode, frame rate was unlocked and basically it, with ray tracing, most of the game seemed to run above 40 frames per second. And it was yeah. like, well, yep. hold on a second. Why not have a 120 hertz mode and cap frame rate to 40 frames per second? Because then you'll have a unique frame every three refreshes of the screen and it will look a ton better than uh, 30 frames per second. Your frame times will drop from 33 milliseconds to 25. And that's kind of a midpoint oh between um, uh, 60 and 30 FPS, uh, which is 60, 17 milliseconds and 33. And lo and behold, Ratchet does exactly that. And nice. kind of difficult to describe this one because we are going to do a, a video on it and try to explain yeah. how this works. But suffice to say, um, it is considerably better than 30 frames per second. Um, yes. Considerably better. And you retain pretty much everything that the 30 FPS mode has. Right, John? Exactly. That's exactly right. So you keep the high res, uh, basically around 4K resolution. All the extra details that were in the 30 FPS mode are there. Uh, but it's 40 instead of 30. And even though 10 frames per second may not sound like a lot, I mean, when you're in these lower frame rates compared, you know, Think about the difference between 20 and 30. It's absolutely massive. And this is a similar size jump, I guess you could say. Um, and I think in the video, we'll, we'll dive deep into why it works because it's all tied into the frame pacing stuff. And that's, that's extremely key. Uh, this would not work. If, if you just capped it at 40 on a 60 hertz display, it would not work. Um, and we'll tell you why about that in the other video. <laughs> we can actually show that. But it's it's... Yeah. So this is this is really an interesting development and it's something that I think we'd like to push going forward because although I would still prefer 60 frames per second or higher, you know, given the opportunity, but in cases where developers want to push the visual envelope, this is a perfect sort of target, I think, and it's uh a lot more feasible, I think, while targeting those high resolutions and uh with the extra details and whatnot. And also under 40 is also where, or around 40, that's kind of like the, the limitation of the VRR window on most TVs. I think the, the C1 is actually a little better than that. But even when you go under that, it does start to get dicey. So this isn't really something that VRR itself would cover either. This is just kind of a weird territory where it's a nice boost from 30, um, but not all the way to 60, making it feasible to still get those those high quality visuals that some developers might want to go for. So. We'll see how this uh, shakes out. Yeah, this is something I've experimented with on PC ever since I got a 120 hertz monitor back in like, what was that, 2010, I guess. Um, and I played a number of games at 40 hertz and I was just surprised at how much more fluid it was than uh, 30 FPS uh, presentation, especially in terms of controls. That's one thing that surprised me most. Uh, Cause like with, with triple buffering, 
adding in all that extra, you know, 33 three milliseconds, you know, like three versions of that, uh, you get a lot of uh, latency really quickly. And 40 actually cuts down on that quite a bit. But that's all stuff you'll be able to talk about. Yeah, and that was actually uh, listed as the uh, principal benefit, actually, in uh, the patch notes. It's like lower latency. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of it. I guess that's something we'll need to actually measure to actually get an idea of what the differentials are. That's designed for the... Uh... If you're in the performance mode and you enable 120 hertz, uh, they're basically reducing input latency by about 8.3 milliseconds. Ah, so that's what it's about? Oh, okay. That, that's the idea at 60. I guess that's really all we'll have to say about that topic until the video comes out, which should be soon enough. And uh, let's roll on to the next one. Begun the acquisition wars have. Sony has been acquiring a variety of studios as of late. And just as we were making this recording this morning, another one came in hot off the wire. We've got Housemark, and now we have Nixies. And to talk about this, John, I'd like to start with you. Yeah, so, I mean, before we talk about that, I should note Nixies, they're Dutch. Philips is Dutch. I see, I see a CDI connection here. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's the return of the CDI. It's, that's what you know, it is. Richard's looking around like, what? Is this, is, well, no. this could be part of uh, Sony's multi-platform strategy that we just are not aware of yet. Ah, uh, yeah. 60 exactly. chess right now. That's it. 60 chess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so this is getting... This is So when it was just Housemark and also Blue Points on the list here because they kind of le leaked that themselves. So you hear that and that, you know... That actually makes sense to me in the sense that these are partners that they've obviously worked with for a long time. It's, it does, it, you know, it's not like when Microsoft got Bethesda, that's like, whoa, that's genuinely shocking and like huge and unexpected. Whereas this is like, that makes perfect sense because they've pretty much been PlayStation software houses for a long time now. Um, but Nixies is a, is a really curious one. I don't, I, I don't understand and I'm I'm a little bit confused. I mean, I guess the only one benefit for them is that they're I assume that they're now free of the Avengers, which, you know, <laughs> it has its benefits. Um but you know, beyond that, I guess so the thing about Nixies is they're not a studio that's known for actually making their original games. They're known for porting games. Uh and they're they have a lot of technical expertise there. Uh, specifically on the PC above all else. And they've been active in the PC space doing ports for decades now. Like it goes back a long way and they're a very, very talented studio in that regard. So we were kind of spitballing, like when we saw this news was kind of like, is this related to, to PC ports that Sony has potentially in the works? Is this something else? Or is Nixie's going to staff up and do their own game? It's, uh, it's really interesting to see all these, this kind of stuff happening. And I mean, I, I'm still a little bit weary of all this consolidation that's happening in the industry where it feels like all these large companies are gobbling up the smaller companies. And I, I don't know where this is going to end up, but it does kind of feel like, like Microsoft has kicked off the competition here and now, you know, uh, others are getting in on it. So I, I, what do you, I mean, what do you think about this, Rich? Um, I think that, uh, that Yoda impression, Alex needs to answer for his crimes. <laughs> um, that's, that's my principal thought going into this one. Uh, but in, in terms of uh, Nixis, um, well, here's the thing. I think it's a 
gigantic <laughs> opportunity here because uh, we know that this developer is absolutely top-notch. They're up there with the best. Um, and yet, all we've seen from them are PC and uh, and Xbox and PlayStation 5 ports of existing games. And what we have seen is fantastic ports, ports that are better than the original versions in many respects. And um, I just really want to see... I mean, this is a... This is a stupendously astute acquisition in my opinion because their technical prowess is is without doubt uh, sony really do need somebody on board who can really do very decent pc ports um because you know horizon kind of went really badly wrong and perhaps it was the choice of partner studio that played a part in that um what you need is somebody who can really do uh, justice to those first-party ports, they can do that. They could do their own games. I have no doubt about that. If you, you know, if Sony wanted to deploy them doing that, uh, sky's the limit, really. They know the PS5 inside and out. They know how to do everything. So why not, you know, acquire that studio and really give them a chance to shine? And I think it's just an absolutely brilliant acquisition. And uh, Sony's loss, I think, is very, very much... Um, sorry, Sony's gain is very, very much Square Enix's loss um, because they've just, they're kind of like the unsung, unsung heroes uh, for Square Enix, in my opinion. And so, yeah, a very, very astute um, acquisition. You mentioned Horizon, though, and that uh, Gorilla is also, of course, a Dutch studio. So this kind of, um, you know, I wonder if this, if they increase their working relationship there more naturally just by virtue of being in the same country. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I think, the, I think, you know, there's no doubt that the acquisition is brilliant. The question is how the studio is going to be deployed. And fundamentally, I think that they've got a lot more to offer than doing, you know, ports of crystal dynamics games and other square Enix titles. So I'm really interested to see what they're going to be coming up with. And, um, it's uh, a really interesting purchase, totally uh, out of the blue, unexpected. I mean, the other ones you could easily predict, but this one targeting a single studio from uh, a single publisher, I think that's really fascinating. I can't wait to see where they go next with that. Yeah, I'm just curious now who's going to port Guardians of the Galaxy to the PC. I mean, uh, I expect, I expect that's it. probably done already. <laughs> Um, now, but yeah, we we should also comment though on Housemark, which is confirmed because this is one that I think is actually really good for the developer uh, in the sense that you know we've we've heard some rumblings that Housemark has had some difficult times over the years. Uh, things didn't always go that well with some of the games that they produced in terms of sales, even though the games themselves were excellent. Um, and you know, Returnal I think did fairly well for them. And I feel like this is this is kind of like uh, their chance to kind of du double up their efforts and really sort of reform and, and become better than they were before. Like, you know, they have the support now that they might have needed in the past and potentially didn't have. So I really hope that this goes well for them. This is interesting for me because um, I only had Housemark contact basically through their PC ports and most recently with Returnal. And one thing that I almost hope doesn't happen is that I hope they don't uh, end up 
making larger games necessarily, but um, just have uh, the assurance and the backing of Sony to make the games they want to make. Uh, and I think these like middle-sized games they've been making for a while, um, to, like, my contact with Returnal was amazing. I don't, I can't imagine an experience that needs to be bigger, but just maybe like more polish and more assurance and all these things. Returnal was a lot bigger for them, but it was like them sort of channeling their expertise in other areas and bringing it into a different sort of game. And I feel like that might represent their kind of future. It's a, it's a good, it's a good place for them to be. I think right. that's for sure. Where I, hope I think on are. the one yeah. hand, um, having financial stability is going to be great for that studio because I think, you know, they've been quite public about the struggles that they had. I mean, Resogun was a huge hit on uh, PlayStation 4, but beyond that, none of their titles really seemed to find an audience. And in some cases, I think particularly the one that stands out being Mex Machina, the yeah, fact that it's awesome, which is incre it's an incredible game. The fact that it didn't really uh, set the charts on fire um, you know, it, it kind of presented a bit of an existential crisis for Housemark, and um, to actually see that Sony of you know, first of all, funded Returnal, and I think they've had a great return from that. Uh, we don't know the sales. <laughs> they've had a return on <laughs> they've it. They've had a return on <laughs> it. Return, return, return. return. <laughs> uh, I think you know, it, it, we don't know the sales, but certainly from the critical perspective, it's just been awesome. And, you know, maybe there's stuff that uh, Sony brings to the party in terms of uh, in ensuring that their titles are sort of guided towards finding an audience without losing the core identity of the studio. I think it's a, a big, big opportunity. And I think uh, <laughs> the Blue Point situation, I mean, it is a no-brainer, really, when you think about it. Um, Demon Souls remake, incredible. Everything that they've done, really, you know, right down to titanfall on the xbox 360 was uh incredible incredible port similar to actually uh rise of the tomb raider on uh, 360 which was uh nixis i believe nixis. Yeah. yeah yeah well. <laughs> so yeah you know basically uh the concept of sony acquiring bluepoint and uh the japanese twitter was it the twitter account basically attaching the wrong <laughs> the wrong picture to their housemark tweet uh, <laughs> yeah. it's just kind of mind-bending but yeah that is another no-brainer um a, a, it is still a relatively small studio but they've demonstrated that they can scale up they've demonstrated that they can produce triple a um, standard games uh, the technical prowess is 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 there um it's it's another brilliant buy for, for sony basically perhaps you know what i find quite interesting here is that um, you know, they clearly Sony doesn't have the budgets of Microsoft in its sort of acquisition kitty. You know, they're, they're not going to be dropping seven or eight billion dollars on a Bethesda or whatever. There's not going to be a Bethesda. <laughs> but, you know, Housemark, Nixis, potentially um, Bluepoint. These, these are, ga you know, these are game makers that excite me and I'm really interested in seeing what they come up with next. I think that's as much as we can say about these acquisitions for now until we hear more about them in the future and we'll be following them of course but now next topic so konami teaming up with bluebird team what is this about john it's a weird one and i love that name bluebird it is fun to say isn't it uh, so this is the developer that was behind the medium they did observer and various other sort of adventure games you know um we we enjoyed the medium i think it was a cool little game so that that launched earlier this year and it looked really nice so 
Uh, but what's interesting is, and I think this kind of follows some rumors that have been, there's been rumors going around that they had something to do with Silent Hill. And that is still not confirmed. But what has been confirmed is, I think as they call it, a strategic cooperation agreement between Konami and Bloober Team. Um, considering their background, to me at least, that seems like they would be working on something Silent Hill adjacent. Uh, and it's also kind of in line with what Konami had done previously with Silent Hill um, post the Japanese original development studio, right? Where they were sort of contracting out Western studios to create this stuff. Uh, but there's also still rumors of a Japanese developer working on Silent Hill as well. So maybe there's two separate games. Maybe they're involved together. Maybe it's not Silent Hill at all. It's, it's actually tricky to say, but it seems... Um, I would say for, for that small team, relatively small, I actually don't know the exact size, but this forming a partnership like this could be a big deal for them and help them sort of get the, the, the backing they need to actually like really pull off something more, um, more polished, larger scale, um, and really like take their craft to the next level, I, I suppose, because most of the games feel, you know, you can kind of feel the budget constraints in there, which is not, not necessarily to knock them in that sense, but you can, you can definitely tell. Um, it's the way I kind of feel about it too, with the seeing this, um, I don't, I have less investment in silent Hill as a franchise. Um, and I have less I have investment in Konami, less investment in Konami since they don't really seem to make games anymore from my uh, perspective. Um, but Bluber, on the other hand, I, I did actually enjoy the Observer. Uh, I did play it through. I, I like it, Observer uh, a lot, actually. That uh, one is a that has a really good atmosphere to yeah, it. Yeah, I like that one a lot. I think I liked uh, the medium less, uh, and mainly because of its technical uh, problems. It was hard for me to play through a game that. Uh, that had technical issues that I was not happy with. Um, so I think any like any of these situations, like we were just talking about with the Sony acquisitions, where if this means more stable supply of money and greater resources and hopefully more time, uh, so they're not having to just like put out games rather rapidly, um, that'd be great. And I'm really excited to see what they what they do because uh, I think if you know they have the talent there, at least visually, I think to pull off a game that could very much so interest me. It's interesting though, because it kind of feels like Konami's sort of edging their way back into games. I always have to wonder if the pandemic hit their health clubs a little bit too hard and they're chinko parlors and they're like, well, we gotta we gotta do something else here. Um, yeah. but people aren't playing pachinko I mean, anymore. They, I, well, I doubt that would happen, but, you know, people love Pachinko. Uh, but still, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic, and I am curious to see, like, Konami does have a lot of valuable IP still, and I wouldn't mind seeing them sort of start to roll it out again and maybe let some more capable developers handle things. Like, um, this was a long time ago, of course, but they handed Contra 4 for the Nintendo DS to... Um, uh, what's their name it's uh the mighty i gotta I got look it up real quick it just slipped my head i'll I'll read it it's way forward yeah so uh, blanking during these things but yeah i mean you know for instance they did contra 4 like many many years ago and that was with way forward uh american developer and you know they they had hank Nieborg do the uh pixel art for it it was a gorgeous game it played extremely well you know that kind of partnership could really work for a lot of their other ip as well um but as far as bloober is concerned i mean unless they're doing a new ip it does kind of feel like a silent hill 
project would make sense for them. But they've never done combat, really, so uh, there's also that to consider. So we'll just have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah, uh, can I just get clarification on something, John? It's a strategic cooperation agreement. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's like salsa. Because it, it sounds like, you know, something incredibly important. <laughs> it does you know, sound really important. It's like it? Konami. Uh, maybe they've moved on from uh, six-dimensional chess to seventh-dimensional chess. <laughs> Who knows? Seven-dimensional chess. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I don't really have anything extra chat. to say about this. Uh, you know, on the face of it, it looks like a good uh, partnership, right? But, um, you know, there's a lot of caveats to it. I think that's really all we can say about that now. I hope we get to hear about what Bloober's doing in the future, but on to the next topic. So rounding off our discussion of news items this week, uh, recently on Steam, I believe, all of the listings for the Final Fantasy Pixel remasters, uh, all the Steam pages were put out, and there was a variety of screenshots released uh, for each of the remasters, and a lot of controversy surrounding them. And I think John's the one of us, of all of us, who've been following it most closely. So what is the controversy here, John? Well, so the, in the screenshots, we finally got to look at the UI. So up until now, they've been sort of discussing their approach to the pixel art for this. And it is promising, I think. They, they're making changes to it, but thus far, I feel like the changes are relatively tasteful. Um, but part of a presentation of a game like this is the UI elements, you know, from the dialogue boxes, the, the menu screen. You see the menu during battle all the time, you know, the map, stuff like that. Well... They're making a similar mistake as we've seen in some of their prior attempts at this, and uh, they've made some very poor selections in regards to the font rendering, the dialogue box resolution, things like that. And it's actually, it gets worse the closer you look. Essentially, the problem is, you know, let's say you have a, have a game for like Super NES. It runs at 256 by 224 pixels usually. Uh, all the pixels are going to be evenly spaced out, the same size, whatever. That's how it's designed. Um, one of the problems as we've moved to HD and we've seen some developers try to do pixel art style games is, uh, when the pixels between different assets don't align anymore. Like, let's say you have, you know, pixels that are like, say one size for one piece of the art and then a different size for something else. Uh, it creates this mismatch that's inauthentic and it looks kind of ugly. That's exactly what we have here. So like in some of these shots, you'll have the background art that's one resolution. Then you have the text box itself, which still is rendered in a way that looks like pixel art, but it's higher resolution than the game I itself. can't stand that. So I that's just literally weird. can't stand that. But then you have the <laughs> fonts that are not rendered in pixel art style. They're just full high resolution fonts and they don't look great to begin with. So that's three right there. And then you have stuff like the map, which is another different resolution. So you're, you, you actually have all these different variable resolution elements all combined into a single screen that just looks... It's garish and ugly, to be honest. It's very unattractive. And I don't understand why they're still... With all the attention they're clearly putting into the art of the game itself, this feels like such a misfire. And it just it just ruins the, other, the presentation otherwise. And again, it's because in these games, you spend so much time looking at these elements. And no, But normally I wouldn't care, right? They did this with Chrono Trigger. They messed it up on Steam and they've patched and stuff. But I'm just like... I don't care. I have the original cartridge. I don't care. If I want to play this, I have other ways. But these are actually interesting because they are doing a lot of updates to the pixel art. They're expanding them to widescreen. You know, this isn't just straight emulation here. We're not just, these aren't, these aren't the original games. 
and the, I was starting to think there's potential here. And then they show the UI and it's just like kind of ruins the whole thing. So uh, if Square is listening, I really hope that they double back and look at this element because I think it's really important to get this part of it right. And unless unless they go back to it, it's going to end up and it's going to have the same critical sort of take that we've seen in the past, especially when you consider that if I recall, the bundle was somewhere around $75 or something like that for all six games. Uh, I, you know, I don't have that in front of me, but it's, it's pricey considering that. So you would kind of hope for a little bit more consistency there. Yeah. One thing that the reason why you even at all do this in the first place is to, uh, kindle up nostalgia for the product as it was, because I don't honestly think this is to appeal to new viewers or new people playing the game, unless it's a mobile game. Uh, and then it's, then it's a different market altogether. Um, and so this is really about the nostalgia and bringing out new versions that are more easy to play for people who love the originals, uh, but don't have the carts like John has. And distorting that nostalgia so heavily with the UI is just completely going against what the entire purpose is. And you're alienating the audience that you're trying to appeal to, as you can see by the massive Twitter reaction <laughs> to this. And even I just looking at it as a casual player of Final Fantasy games, I think it's, it's hideous. So uh, I definitely hope it changes. The thing is, is they have actually done work to fix things in the past. They did go back to that Chrono Trigger port on Steam, as far as I know. So it does seem like they listen. So I hope that this reaction is taken to heart and they actually go back and uh, redo this aspect of it. Uh, because if they do, it could actually wind up being pretty solid. So let's hope. Yeah, so John, if they're, um, if they're listening, why are they making these mistakes again and again? I guess is my question. That's the curious thing. They they listen, they fix a prior product, and then they do it all over again. I don't know why. I genuinely don't understand it. I mean, maybe it's different teams. Maybe it's uh, my. I mean, some my only guess, and I don't even think this is necessary. Like the font rendering, you know, higher resolution is better for Japanese characters, but it's not really necessary to be honest. I mean. I just played all the way through Ease 4, the Dawn of Ease on PC Engine this year in Japanese and could read it just fine. And that's, you know, a 256 pixel wide game. And it's not optimal for this character rendering, but still, the problem here is that the English font that they're using is especially hideous and just doesn't line up with the artwork. So, you know, they could do something simple as double it, like doing a double pixel size for the, the font if they feel like it doesn't fit the, the, the character set because it's too complex of characters, you know, at least keeping in with the ratios, you know, maybe. And it's, it's they still got to fix the actual dialogue boxes, which are not which don't match the resolution of the rest of the game, but they don't match the fonts either. So it's like it's all different. <laughs> this is wild. Oh so, gosh, yeah. I, I do hope they okay. change this. Yeah, but, I have, uh, my rant is complete. <laughs> uh, now that we're done with our ranting here, I think we can move on to the next bit of DF Direct Weekly, where we talk about this week's content. Starting our discussion of DF content this week, another installment of DF Retro is coming out. Uh, continuing John's here, uh, exploration of the launch of the PlayStation 1 platform. John, what do you have to say about this next installment here? Yes, yeah, so first, uh, coming back to the public channel is uh, the next part of that. We put out the part one last week and it was uh, covering the Japanese stuff. This time we're covering the US launch. So this winds up being the longest part of this 
almost three hour video in its original form. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Just exploring all the different games and the history of its launch leading up to its arrival in the US. All kinds of good stuff. Uh, I hope people really enjoy that. The feedback was really nice on the first episode, first part of that. So, and, uh, and of course our patrons saw it a while ago in its entirety. Uh, and it's thanks to them that such a long video can even exist in the first place, which ties into the fact that if you're one of our awesome patrons and you're watching this direct early, uh, we also have the next episode of DF Retro coming out this weekend. Uh, so it's up on Sunday and this one is less ambitious because uh, we needed to do something a little bit more uh, chill this this month. It kind of ebbs and flows, if you will, but it's still going to be a long episode, and uh, it's a weird one. We decided to cover the Super Star Wars trilogy on Super NES, and part of the reason this ties directly at back into that Shadows of the Empire episode, because in many ways I feel like these are the prequels uh, to that game. And many, you know, in terms of the game design, some of the people that worked on them, there's a lot of similarities there. Uh, but Super Star Wars is really interesting, I think, in general, just as it has a lot of technical flaws. But what they were trying to do at the time in terms of retelling the story using all these different gameplay mechanics and concepts and changing between characters, going in and out of vehicles, having 3D sections. It was pretty impressive, I think, when it hit. Um, and it also, you know, there's some interesting ports to talk about, like the two prototypes, actually, the Mega Drive prototype or Genesis prototype. And then, of course, the near complete PC version that was put out uh, not too long ago, I guess, that was ported by a brain bug. I think it is like a, a studio in Europe um, for LucasArts, but LucasArts decided not to release it, even though it was like 99 percent complete. It's really, really good. So we got full comparisons with that. Plus, we actually delve into the history of like Star Wars video games and how we even got to this point where they were able to make this uh, going all the way back to the 80s. So uh, there's some really cool information there and it's it's kind of fun. And yeah, I, I look forward to getting that out there as well. And we already have the next few months planned, too. So it's a uh, it's it's rolling smooth. I've been looking at some of the screenshots John's been sending me uh, between the various versions of the game. And I think always one of my favorite parts about, uh, I would say from like the early 2000s, maybe mid 2000s a little bit till the 90s and I guess late 80s is that the version differences are so large at times where it almost looks like you're looking at a different game. And the story behind that beyond the technical differences is also fascinating as well too. And I think we're gonna, we're in for a treat here. I can't wait to watch, John. I'm just gonna put in a big, big plug for the DF supporter program in general. Uh, <laughs> just to remind people what we're doing here, because we're actually two months in now. And I'm um, just looking at the content list, uh, essentially premium tier, we've delivered um, 16 or 17 bonus videos in two months, which is uh, pretty big. Add in DF Retro, and you know, you've had early access to those two big episodes, Quake and the Sony PlayStation launch. Uh, we've got currently on early access there, revisiting the Wii U at uh, E3 2012, <laughs> Nintendo's last press conference, which was uh, which was really good. That was that'll a fun one. Public at, uh, that'll be going public at some point uh, pretty soon. Uh, the DF Retro Corner, DF Retro Q&A, you've done a DF Retro live stream, uh, the DF Retro pickups. Um, and just general early access um, to a lot of our 
standard content. And because of all of this stuff that's happening behind the scenes to, to most people in the supporter program, it kind of, uh, a lot of it uh, feeds back into the main channel, uh, which means that, you know, we're putting out more videos basically than we ever have before. But if you want to be involved, if you want to support all of this, um, then patreon.com slash digital foundry and uh, check out what's going on there. There's basically new posts there virtually every day. And uh, DF Discord, of course, you, you know, people just pop up, ask us questions. You know, we're there. We're talking to our, our audience. This is what we want. We want to build this really positive community. And uh, so far, two months in, I'm loving it. Yeah, it's uh, really useful for me to just making videos because I talk with uh, people there who are very passionate PC gamers and have a passion for um, graphics technology as I do. And for example, in the most recent Doom video, uh, I'm just working on it right now and I was just, uh, one of the members contacted me and told me a bit about switching out the DLLs for DLSS to enhance image quality or just looking at that. And they were doing some of this testing essentially with me to figure out what was going on. So this is, you know, stuff otherwise really where fun, I might yeah. be sitting, you know, it's, you know, this interaction really helps our video content make it even more accurate at the same time. So it's awesome stuff. And I hope people do consider joining our Patreon. And of course, Biomutant, when? <laughs> Every day. Ah, gosh, speaking of other content though, and awesome stuff, John, you have an interview that's up on the channel. I just recently saw, I have yet to watch though, unfortunately. Um, so can you fill us all in about what this interview is about? Oh yeah, I mean, that's kind of continuing. Um, we talked to MVG recently, and uh, we also had an opportunity to talk to Joe Modaleski from uh, Limited Run as well, sort of get more insight into what they're doing over there. And, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, we know those guys, so it was, a, it was nice to have them on again. Um, and I, I like what they do over there, but you wouldn't think of them as a, you know, they're just a publisher, right? But they actually have a programming team in house because a lot of the games from these smaller developers, they don't have the resources to port stuff themselves. Uh, so that's where people like Joe come in and they help bring these games over to other platforms that they weren't originally designed for, which is, uh, it's kind of a win-win I think for everyone. So, uh, yeah, it's a pretty fun, insightful interview and, um we enjoyed doing it and yeah we're that's something we want to kind of expand upon as well is just you know get more developers involved and bring them on the channel and record some interviews like that and uh yeah hopefully that continues yeah that should be great i've always kind of wanted to uh, do that in the streaming aspect bringing on developers to stream but unfortunately this year i've been so busy that i have yet really to have streaming had the time tough. to do that but but <laughs> this year has been really busy so far uh, much more so than last i would even say uh but yeah awesome content can't wait to watch this video with john but now let's finish off our discussion of df content and move on to our weekly patreon q a session Okay, our first question here is from a person named Nolasco. I presume that's a pseudonym. If not, I'm sorry. The question reads, Hi DF homies, heart emoji. This is more of a retro CRT question, so for John here it sounds like. I recently bought a Bang Olufsen CRT MX7000. It sounds Olufsen, it's cool. Without any kind of info manual and I'm wondering uh, how clueless people like me can know if the TV in question supports RGB without any special equi equipment. It has two scarts, and uh, should you remove the front glass for better picture? 
P.S. Any chance to make a DF Retro on PS2 2D collection games like Fatal Fury Battle Archives Volume 2 that get a re-release from Limited Run on the PlayStation 4? Thank you for your time. A bunch of stuff in here, John, for you. Oh, man, let's go through it. So, yeah, the Bang & Olufsen sets are actually pretty interesting. Um, so Bang & Olufsen, you know, they produced a lot of high-end gear, right? Uh, and they did that back then, too. So they made a lot of really, like, uh, expensive CRTs back in the day that also kind of focused on the design aspect. Uh, so they're pretty nice-looking devices. And Audi's still hunting one because they actually did release a model that has a built-in CDI player, which is uh, certainly something. <laughs> uh, but, um, so, but yeah, Quality. unfortunately. So without any kind of manual, it's tough to tell this stuff. But in that case... Every Bang & Olufsen that I've tested from that era, and I think the MX-7000 for sure, they do indeed support RGB without any special equipment. And they do support 50 or 60 hertz, which is great. Um, so you should be able to hook up directly to it and just start playing from there. And adjusting these things is a little bit tricky. They're not packed with options and service mode adjustments are tricky on that. If you look online, you should actually be able to find a service manual for this or at least a decent manual somewhere. Uh, I've seen those around for sure. As far as the the front so the front glass on these, what that is is it's specifically sort of a contrast glare filter, if you will. Um, later on, that would actually they would kind of coat the the surface of a CRT with this kind of thing to reduce glare and also increase the appearance of like the so CRTs have great contrast ratio and black levels, of course, natively. But if you don't apply any sort of treatment to the glass itself, the actual picture tube can appear somewhat gray to the eye as light from outside penetrates the glass. And that's, that's not, has nothing to do with the display characteristics. It's literally just light interacting with the glass itself. And a lot of the highest end professional displays do appear somewhat gray in a lit room. And that's apparently because people actually doing calibrations didn't want any sort of contrast enhancement applied to the glass. But consumer sets like this often had it. So I actually think leaving it in place is the better choice. The only downside is that uh, it does sort of darken the picture a little bit. So, I, you know, you kind of got to leave it up to yourself on that one. I wouldn't remove it. And then lastly, uh, PS2 2D collections. That's a tricky one. Um, I wouldn't necessarily specifically make a video just on that per se. But if I were to cover some of those games that where the collection in, includes the game in question, then I would definitely cover it. So I think that answers most of it. <laughs> it definitely does. Uh, thanks for that, John. Okay, so next question here is from Oliver McKenzie. And it starts with a statement, ends with a question. Games are primarily visual, comma. And the way a game looks and animates in response to player input is critical to how a game is enjoyed. I don't think many people would uh, argue with that. Does the popularity held distinction between gameplay and graphics ever bother you? Or do you think the concepts are easily separable? I think it's so... Weird one. <laughs> I actually think... I, I have some good arguments. I thought about this a lot. I think the best games deliver attractive visuals and tight gameplay on top of it. And you can absolutely combine them. Uh, I think it's really important. And this especially is true with like things like animation. Like the way things look when you move, even if it's simplistic, is really important to like capturing the feel and the feel of the core gameplay is critical. 
I mean, you know, if Mario was very poorly animated, it just wouldn't work. Um, but at the same time, um, I think it is possible to kind of move the needle in one direction and the other and actually separate them. And sometimes it can still work. A good example of this is something like the original Deus Ex, which I think is a fantastic game. But you actually look at it. It wasn't unattractive for its day, but the animation is really bad. And the game itself feels very, very janky to play. Uh, or even more so, like some of the older Bethesda games. Like you look at Morrowind or even like Daggerfall. Like they had some impressive elements, but in general, the way they move is very, very, very poor. Uh, but they did enough in the other direction that it was still enjoyable. So it's it's kind of like you kind of got to strike that balance where, you know, you can either do ex insane visuals, poor gameplay, you know, amazing gameplay, poor visuals, and it can still work. But I think the best of the best tend to deliver both. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, John said it all right there. I think uh, just conceptually, you can, of course, uh, as concepts separate them, but as soon as you start interacting with the game, uh, graphics and gameplay mix together because John was just talking about the animation of Mario being so important or the animation in general, but like when you, for example, in a first person shooter, if you shoot a gun, it has to have some level of satisfying visual element to it or in an RTS game, when you command a unit, uh, it can't just not say anything and be completely quiet. The audio feedback from the game, you know, like the, the characters talking with you, all these little things uh, are part of the audio visual aspect of a game, which makes its gameplay at the same time. Um, but I think, uh, like John was just exactly saying, there's going to be games that uh, appeal to me very greatly, even though I think they are graphically weaker. Uh, just because the gameplay strength overwhelms any of the, the shortcomings. I think it's really important to understand that when we talk about good graphics, that doesn't mean necessarily technically advanced graphics, right? Um, you can do so many things with, with like, uh, recently, I would say, you look at, like, uh, the Switch conversion of Virtua Racing or, like, Hotshot Racing. It's very simple, flat-shaded polygons. Uh, it's gorgeous the way it looks in motion. Uh, but it's not technically advanced or even like a 2d sprite game, for instance, um, you these days, there's nothing technically amazing about it, but you know, uh, you play Sonic mania, it feels and looks amazing to play. The graphics are nice. They're attractive, but they're not like advanced. So there is still that distinction there. It's not just about technology or, you know, crisis. We talk a lot about crisis, right? Crisis is actually, I think a great game. It's not just about the graphics, but the way it feels is important. Uh, the mission design, everything kind of comes together in that. Or um, one last one I would say is Turok. Turok Dinosaur Hunter from 97. You know, it's pretty dated now. But you, th you look back at what most shooters were doing in 97 and you realize the thing that Turok had was this gameplay feel. The movement of the camera, the sway of the gun, the frames of animation used for firing the gun, the way enemies react to each shot. This stuff was really just so satisfying. It feels great. It was both technical and just like artistically well done in that sense. Like the, the act of playing the game feels good as a result of that. And so even though that game looks super dated now, it still holds up remarkably well just because of the fluidity of everything. And this is something really important, I think, that, that does uh, tie right into this topic. But... We could probably go on maybe, and on about this, but that's kind of Maybe thoughts. we should come up with some sort of hybrid word that encapsulates this satisfying 
audiovisual feedback that you're describing there, which is gameplay orientated and not just visually like a cutscene. Maybe we need to coin a word there. It almost kind of ties into, I remember Miyamoto saying so long ago that when they made uh, Ocarina of Time and N64, they, they included that role that you could do so that when you're running across these large spaces, you just have this thing that you can do with Link uh, just as you move. It doesn't add that much, but it looks cool. It feels good. You know, it's just little touches like that that make just the act of like manipulating the character feel better. And that stuff, that stuff adds up and that, that tends to make games feel more satisfying to play overall. I do like that See, kind of stuff. I, I'm reading the question. I still think it's a bit weird because I don't think a game developer, uh, when they're producing a game, uh, has a distinction as such between gameplay this, and graphics. This is more like post-release, I feel. Like the way they're <laughs> viewed critically, not what the intent is, right? But, you know, if you consider the way, you know, for example, we, we've seen like behind the scenes uh, footage of how Uncharted 2 was made. You know, they start with really basic block levels before they even do any art, you know. So you could say at that point, the focus is on the gameplay and they kind of just assume that the graphics are going to happen. But um, the, the question is just kind of weird to me because, you know, in the development cycle, nobody's, unless it's like a really small developer or whatever, um, or there is a specific game objective that they want for the project, um, that they're not really separating gameplay well, and graphics. I do so. think it's important to, con like, as far as I would see it, you know, I would, I would imagine a developer would kind of have a grasp of, okay, these are the resources I'm going to have. This is the kind of budget I have to play with. You know, we know what we can do with this. And this, the difficulty is like, this is the target we want to hit. We're here. How do we get here in a way that's like realistic and achievable? And you may, you won't hit that target right away. That obviously is what takes time. But you said like Uncharted 2. I mean, they knew what they could achieve within like a ballpark. And so they started from a place and they worked their way there. I would hope then a smaller developer would be like, well, we obviously can't do all of this stuff. So that's not factored into the, the base design from the beginning. It's more like here's the path we're going to try to take. We think we can get to this. This is what we're going for. And taking all that into consideration, try to make something fun and beautiful uh, within those constraints. And then that's the thing that doesn't always work out. First of all, I want to, the last part, um, I feel like this is a question that could be asked of every console with every generation. And in general, I mean, technically it can be if you're looking at the PC platform, but in general, I, I, I don't think this is any different than it's ever been. Right. I, I think, I think these new machines, in fact, are a lot, there's so much stronger than PS4 and Xbox one that it's actually looking upwards, I'd say. It's more positive, I feel, than what they was happening last time. And it's kind of amazing what they managed to squeeze out of those old machines, too. So I'm not worried about that. Uh, but as far as 
I mean, I think Alex would agree with you. I don't see ray tracing necessarily getting left behind at all. I think developers are moving directly towards it. It is kind of like uh, the future. It's it's where we want to go. It's not only is it offering more accurate, higher quality rendering features, especially for you know, GI reflections and numerous other things. Although on the consoles, maybe not all at once. Um, it it also makes development friendlier especially for the art team in terms of like working with this stuff you know because a lot of the systems in the past and all the probes and other baked solutions all of this stuff is um it's more intensive for the art team to work with and requires a lot of jerry rigging i think to to make it look acceptable and to close up all the holes and limitations there and they spent a long time working on that stuff and it does look good but i feel like ray tracing is that's where we're going and you can't stop this train. <laughs> uh, that's, prime. that's pretty much the way I see about it right now. I think um, it can't be left behind mainly because it is the key way to extract uh, better visuals for a lot of aspects of video game rendering uh, that cannot be done without some form of ray tracing. And it seems <clears throat> like a waste of hardware space uh, to just let the hardware unit sit there and do nothing when you could be using them and enhancing your game. Uh, yes, it is obviously expensive and cross-gen does technically make it a bit easier because you have this old cross-gen game uh, with less intensive uh, visual rendering features for like character models and view distance and shadow quality and all these things. So you can add in ray tracing, uh, I would say more easily since you have all this extra budget for milliseconds in your, in your frame. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's just so, so core to the way uh, graphics are going. And it's gonna get you know, just better all the time. We're gonna see some great stuff this gen. I, you know, I, I'm not worried about it going away. And I don't think we need to worry about it 2020 era ray tracing hardware as we get to 2026. Uh, because, you know, this happens every single time we have consoles. You know, it's nothing to be worried about, yeah. And also, to be fair, the PC as well, where you, know, you don't wanna just drop the support for all of your previous customers. I mean, it is difficult to make a break for new technology. They already did that with introducing ray tracing, like various other features in the past, but it's not something that can happen constantly uh, for a healthy market. So, you know, they also have to support older PC graphics cards. Mm, I think the only thing that's in danger of being left behind is the Xbox Series S, uh, and not down to really down to its uh, processing capabilities, but I still think that the memory situation on that is going to come back to, to to pose problems there. But, you know, even on Series S, we've seen, um, uh, you know, Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition, an engine built with ray tracing in mind, running on a four teraflop GPU, and in, in a, you know, in an acceptable way. So, you know, I think it's simply going to be the case that uh, developers are going to be uh, doubling down on ray tracing and getting more out of it. And um, all of those optimizations I'm actually quite excited about because they'll feed back into the PC space where you do have a lot more horsepower in the here and now um, in the ray tracing side where you do have stuff like uh, machine learning. And we're going to see some fantastic scalability there. But the interesting thing which uh, is kind of curious about this question, frame rate resolution or ray tracing pick two, um, you know, you look at what uh, Insomniac are doing with Ratchet and & Clank and essentially, you know, the choice 
is well for a start you can have everything <laughs> uh, pretty much with the performance rt mode or the fidelity 40 F fps mode but the point is that the, the choice is there for the user and i think that's something that's been a really uh, positive move forward uh, with this console generation move on next question this one from paul kalamata what title do you guys anticipate being the next milestone in bleeding edge video game graphics in the near future and why? John? All, all we could say is you look at like, there's a lot of very talented studios that have yet to dive into or actually release a next generation project, right? So we'll be having our, our eye firmly planted on these studios, I think, going forward especially uh, those that have left behind the last generation of consoles. I think uh, we haven't seen it yet. Uh, I mean, I, do, I really do think the next um, Avatar, the Avatar game that's coming out, based upon what they've said so far, is going to be pretty damn awesome. Like, they're pushing ray tracing hard. It's next gen only. We've already seen it. I think that's going to be uh, making some waves. And uh, I guess the next uh, thing that came to my mind was... Uh, Embark Studios, uh, which is made up of a whole bunch of people, and they're pushing like new paradigms of uh, with the way games are programmed, uh, with like using a lot of machine learning, a lot of new procedural uh, kind of content creation, and they're you know staffed by some of the best and most brilliant minds. So I think whatever they're going to put out. Whenever that may be, it's probably going to be really great looking. So those are just things that kept in my mind. But there's, you know, there's a ton of games that are going to be amazing. Looking. Well, I think the thing about uh, uh, the question here is, you know, he specifies the near future. And if it is the near future, it's got to be games that have already been announced. So, but I still think the point stands that you'll be looking towards the studios that have historically delivered those games um, that have elevated the visual arts. And I suppose if we're looking at the near future, um, the game that excites me the most from that perspective would be possibly Forza Horizon 5. Um, that was that looked absolutely amazing. Thinking about that, one thing I saw this week with Forza Horizon 5 is that they announced that it has a uh, weather that's based on, uh, however you would describe it, like location more than anything else, where it's like you can actually see, for instance, a storm arriving in the distance and then drive across the level and arrive at the storm. I wonder how they do you know, that. Which is, uh, I don't feel like we've seen this before, really. I mean, the thing is, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm really wondering how they do that. Because they always use, they use photo skyboxes, uh, and they still do. I have no idea how they're doing that. We'll, we'll find out. Uh, it's pretty interesting. So I think that's really all about that. We can't really add too much to think, that question. Yeah, I think in the very near future, I have got to see that console port of Flight Simulator. Oh, okay. Yeah, Which, yeah. Uh, that know, uh, that oh, was yeah. a milestone in beating edge video game graphics. And to see it running on a console, I think, is going to be a real treat. I'll probably be the person checking that out, I imagine. If the, if the timing's right, if the timing's right, we'll see. Um, Next question here is from Kilkia123. Hi, DF. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine. How are you guys doing? Face middle. Great. <laughs> uh, smiley face. Coming up on episode 18 now, how is it like to film these DF Direct weekly segments? Is there anything behind the scenes that makes putting these together perhaps more difficult than we are aware of? Any fun bloopers or outtake moments? 
Rich? Uh, well, this particular episode, uh, we feel we get late because I couldn't make it this morning. Uh, I had a low resolution issue at the beginning. Uh, a gigantic fly entered the fray. Um, and then your internet connection cocked out, uh, Alex. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, yeah. in terms of uh, logistical issues, uh, anything behind the scenes that makes putting these together perhaps more difficult than we are aware of, well, then they, there you go. Fun bloopers or outtake moments, uh, I would imagine that uh, Audi's going to be having a field day. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, on a more general sense, it's kind of, well, you know, we could quickly go into how we do it, which is essentially rather than using Zoom or anything like that, we each individually film our streams, we compress them, we send them to Audi, and then, you know, he uh, does the edit, he adds in uh, B-roll and stuff. And um, so, yeah, the idea was not just, just you know, not to do just a, a Zoom call or whatever, to do something a little bit better. Um but yeah, it's basically the fact that we've got three or four internet connections that need to be running <laughs> optimally for this to work. And uh, I don't know, um, seems to be sort of going okay. I mean, what is it like to film these segments? I mean, it's really nice just to have, you know, a couple of hours to sit down with my colleagues and just talk about stuff that's happening. And, um, you know, appreciate Alex's new haircuts. Oh, thank uh, you. There we should. <laughs> Always good value, in, in, you know. Deodor impression. Without without so without DF Direct Weekly, that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Uh, just from my perspective, talking about these, one thing that uh, so you know, having Audi come on and working on this and working on DF Retro has meant a less pressure for the rest of us to be producing uh, in general, just because you know we want to fill out the weekly slot schedule on YouTube. Uh, so this is uh, definitely. Uh, I would say increased my free time, the DF Direct Weekly and Audi uh, helping us out as he is and joining DF uh, as part of that too. Um, at the same time, to do a DF Direct Weekly means sitting down during the day and uh, making sure you look all right and making sure you have something interesting to contribute and not just uh, kind of moaning, yeah, every single time someone says something. I know people think I do that. So you, have, you do have to be, you have to have your wits about you. Uh, so it does, there's a little challenge there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any comments john about the afternoon weekly oh it's uh it's pretty fun i'd say i mean i it's a nice thing and at first we've always had trouble in the past sort of keeping up some a regular thing like this so uh i'm very happy that we finally pulled it off and it's actually going quite well uh again thanks to audio uh, editing this stuff the, for the, us. i think the one uh, the one element of dread is that sometimes i mean we film this on thursday morning usually and uh sometimes you get to wednesday and we're putting the docket together and there's nothing to talk about <laughs> and he's thinking oh no yeah that can that, be that can be slightly cold. problematic oh, yeah. um but yeah the q a is always fun uh, which kind of leads us on yeah. to the fine final question which is uh yeah. i don't really know what's pretty to great John, I'm just going to pose it to you. Lichdom Battle Mage? From Dogtype? <laughs> yeah, from Dogtype. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad game, really. It was just the performance. I mean, it was funny because we'd never seen performance that low on PS4, Xbox One. But 
honestly, if you load that up now on a Series X or a PS5, it's, I think it's pretty much just lock 60 FPS now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's meme worthy because of what happened back then, but the game itself is actually not bad. I played it on PC. No, it's quite okay. It's quite okay. It's the yeah. only thing, the only anecdote I remember from that was like, I posted that content 2016 and then I went to E3 that year and it, and maximum games had a booth and i just kind of wandered into the booth to see what was there and i started fiddling around with the game and then one of their guys came over and said oh yeah look at this cool you press this button you do this and and then it kind of dawned on him very shortly is like wait a minute i know that voice (laughs) (laughs) oh no and he remained polite but I could tell there was this realization where he's like, oh, wait, okay. <laughs> I think, you know, the guy who trashed they did fix it. They yeah, that's the it point. Though, they so. did fix it. You know, it's not exactly a, they actually fixed a maximum it. budget studio, is it? And, no, it uh, <laughs> They did turn that game around. So props to them. And, um, they, they did and it, yeah, man. back compact, 60 FPS. It's the PC experience. It's good stuff. Just so. sheer brute yeah. force. <laughs> it's a I, I do recommend people check it out if they can uh i think the pc version is pretty great uh, actually not bad it really isn't it's not a bad game yeah yeah but uh, uh it's hard to you know end an episode after such an amazing game like lich to battle mage but i think that comes to the end of this uh df direct weekly all things must end unfortunately but thank you everyone for uh joining me today on df direct weekly it's a pleasure but of course yeah and uh if you did enjoy this video please do hit that like button and subscribe to the channel if you're already a subscriber hit that little bell in the corner somewhere here i imagine where you can get instant notifications every single time digital foundry posts a video if you want to ask a question that we answered today for example in this df direct weekly join our patreon to get years worth of our content available on high quality for download and our discord as well as a bunch of behind the scenes kind of stuff if you want to talk to us, well, here is our Twitter handles. And as always, this is Alex saying Auf Wiedersehen und Auf Wiedersehen from the fly as well. <laughs>